0: Hey, thanks so much for joining me for this special bonus episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. If this is the first time you've downloaded this show, I'm Tim Hamrich, and you've caught us at a very unique uh, episode, one I'm calling a bonus episode. Normally, I publish one show per week. It comes out on Wednesday mornings in the U.S. And this is additional content from the episode I published last week with Matthew Pryor, who's with Authentic and Tenacious Ventures in Australia. I highly encourage you, if you didn't already, to go back and listen to that one as we discuss his entrepreneurial journey, which is pretty incredible, if you ask me. Uh, But Matthew is also very knowledgeable about water. His last startup was a successful irrigation technology company, and he has lived in both California and Australia, two places both trying to figure out pretty substantial water issues. Now, water is a topic I've been very interested in, especially in the last two years, and so we took a 20-minute departure in my interview with him away from his entrepreneurial journey and into more some of his thoughts and observations from watching water issues closely over the past 15 years. We also get into what innovations might help with some of these complex issues. I couldn't record it and just not share it, even though I couldn't really get it to fit into last week's episode. So I decided to try this, a a bonus episode. I'll drop you into the conversation here where I asked Matthew to share his perspective about the value of water and how value placed on water differs from Australia to somewhere like here in the US. If
1: you kind of zoom out, say at
0: landscape scale, probably
1: the first thing that's immediately different between Australia and, and largely the US is the overwhelming portion of water-intensive agriculture and let's, for the purpose of the conversation, say, you know, the irrig- irrigated ag. In Australia, it happens through a, a, what we call one system, so the Murray-Darling Basin system. And I think it's, it's maybe in the order of 80%. Of, of irrigated agriculture in australia is out of effectively a single connected system and that's kind of in the sense of you know where the water comes from and goes to but also largely the policy framework that sits around it i mean it, it gets wickedly complicated quickly but yeah that's a decent summary so that's interesting right because on the one hand and this did happen in the early 2000s. You know, the federal government can come in and say we're going to completely change the way water is managed and the kind of legal and policy frameworks that sit over the top of the water and impact almost all of irrigated agriculture in Australia. But on the you know on the other hand, it's it's a, as you kind of get down to the you know details, it, it does get pretty complicated pretty quickly. The other really important part is. Um, for the most part, the person who owns the land does not necessarily own the water. It's almost always the case that you use the water as part of a water entitlement, which is independent from the land. And this is um, possibly one of the most controversial parts because it's it's reasonably unique um, and, and certainly to be managed at a federal level uh, it's certainly something that Australia is, you know, very well known for in kind of water policy and water management circles, but it's it's also one of the most contentious areas of, of water management in Australia.
0: And so you said, kind of the one water, you know, the one basin that's feeding so much of you know eighty percent or so of the uh, irrigated acreage. So I assume that's all surface surface water. Is there is there uh, you know groundwater as well? Yeah, yeah
1: heaps. I mean there's 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 a lot of groundwater as well. Um, and yeah, as you kind of get down to that regional scale, then typically groundwater and surface water in those areas, the licensing system that those are used within will then come down to, kind of, you know, a, a catchment area or a basin area of some sort. Mm-hmm. And that varies, you know, state to state uh, and region to region, but you know, typically those will be you may have in some bit of productive land, you may have an entitlement to some uh, underground water and, and some river-based water. And you might balance and blend those into your operations, You know, depending on availability, depending on price.
0: I guess those are freely traded. Is there one water market that everybody uses? <laughs> yeah,
1: you can probably hear me chuckling. I mean, largely, yes. So there is uh, active, water trading market and effectively, yes, it's it's a national market with, with caveats and mm-hmm. essentially you can trade both a kind of seasonal, so it's got a temporary entitlement and a permanent entitlement. The pros of that are, you know, there's economics in water, so water really does have a price um, and, and so it can flow to the highest economic use. The downside is that a lot of people might observe that, you know, in a permanent, on a permanent basis, water and land can be separated and, you know, that that, in, in some ways of looking at it can have
0: positive and negative outcomes. I would have bet that the temporary use is really volatile. Is the permanent use pretty volatile as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, within time periods, probably not quite as much, but over a decently long period of time, you know, vary the influencing factors there. You know, obviously, would be, you know, climate, uh, well, it's the season and climate, but also there have been significant periods of time when the government has intervened as a participant in the water market and, and probably the periods where prices have been impacted the most have been when the government has entered the market as a, as a water market participant.
0: Interesting. And what's your assessment as far as how that's working? It sounds like maybe it's it's come on these last couple of decades. I think you said early 2000s. Sure. Yeah. Um, how's that working? <sighs>
1: I mean, I, I almost kind of have a split personality over this. So the kind of Logician, technician, uh, economic rationalist part of me thinks you know it's easily the best system going around, and the idea that you know it's a commodity that can be traded, it's a, a a resource that can go to highest use, it's a resource that you know farmers who are struggling for one reason can economically benefit from another. So you know on a a bunch of those, you know, technical and theoretical elements, there's a lot of big ticks. And I know I, I've been part of international delegations that have gone to the UN and FAO and, you know, plenty of po- places at a policy and government level, you know, talking about Australia's water policies, like any market, and and because, you know, humans are about the most adaptable and, and uh, things on the planet, like, everyone will find angles so I think the the level to which the system adapts to the ingenuity of humans, and the level to which the system adapts to the horrific levels of drought that this country has faced over the last you know five plus years, and the you know economic carnage that that wreaks um, is is harder to be definitive about you know in a positive way. So what I mean by that is. When water is incredibly scarce, of course, the price is going to go up. And so when you have people in a market who are trading purely on a kind of speculative and money-making basis where there are others in the market who desperately need access to that scarce resource simply to keep animals alive, keep the farm in family hands, it's hard to think that if things are working well. And, you know, certainly yeah. there is a, a good you know, number of people who at the moment are very dissatisfied with the way the system is working.
0: Yeah. And on the groundwater, I take it then you have to, you have to report to some sort of regulatory body, how much groundwater you're pumping. Is that, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this
1: is where to me, the, the, the kind of tech side of things really starts to get interesting. So mm-hmm. largely, yes, uh, in the detail way, complicated um, tends to be that it's a state-based thing often uh, tends to be that the, actual legal obligations and the technical um, details of how that's done, you know, they A, vary and B, get complicated, but essentially, yes, you know, entitlements are very monitored for, for the most part and typically there's a lot of techni- technology involved in, in some parts of the country there are, you know, large and incredibly impressive, you know, landscape scale kind of engineering projects that both control and measure how water is used. Uh, in others, you know, it, there's a desperate need for far more transparency and visibility in, in how water is used. And, you know, possibly that's that's one of the other areas of, uh, you know, that's still pretty controversial.
0: Sure. First of all, I think it's great that the country is trying to address the problem. It, se- it feels like sometimes in the U.S. we are sort of just burying our heads in the sand a little bit and in kind of pretending it doesn't exist because there's still water today. Yeah. And so uh, I'm by no means a, bi- a big government person, but I see the water issue as one that that private industry and, and the public sector need to work together on. What opportunities do you see currently uh, in, in water, specifically with an ag lens on, mm. uh, that you would like to see maybe startups try to come up with creative solutions for? Yeah, it was interesting,
1: Tim, because when uh, Observant actually made the decision to move to the US, it was it was largely based on water availability on the West Coast. I guess in 2012, 13, 14, you know, there was a lot of pressure uh, and significant challenges around water availability. So it, it was that experience that drew us uh, to the kind of California high-value crop markets as, as the first place outside of Australia that we thought we could apply our expertise But it was interesting, you mentioned earlier about people understanding the price of water and from a technology point of view, we kind of always thought, well, all you need to do is get in there and measure it and tell people how much they're using and they'll realise the error of their ways and, and change. Our lived experience is that water having a price is nowhere nearly the same as water having a value and water's value in agriculture still often, you know, maybe is an order of magnitude more than its price. And so expecting people to change behaviour solely based on the, the cost of the water and the implied difference you can make with technology, I think even today hasn't been successful because the value of the water is that it's available, the value of the water is that I want to know that the one thing I'm definitely not doing is putting on too little. That's, relatively speaking, easy to do because I've, I've basically known how to do that for a long time and so that that kind of behavioural change is much harder to implement. From a technology point of view, then I think, again, I'm, I'm kind of back in the human behaviour change category, right? One of the things you observe about... Irrigated agriculture and certainly one of the things I would say that is very much the same between my experience in the US and my experience in Australia is that you are talking about how to change the way people do things and technology is almost never the reason people change the way they do things. It might enable something different, but you really have to understand you know, why it is that people continue to do stuff in a way that where there are three or four other choices of doing it and most of them might result in more accurate use of water, right, more, more efficient use of water. Maybe you're giving the plant just what it needs rather than a lot more than it needs and seeing a bunch of that, you know, drop down through the root zone. But it's, yeah, it's a combination of factors. Like there's, you know, the cost both of access and the pumping cost and sometimes those are material, but the, it's also you know, the things that people don't factor in as much, as, which is you know, just trust and labour and reliability of labour and belief in someone else's decision-making power. So I think that's, those are the things you really have to think about technology. What, what behavioural change are you actually hoping to see and why, just because you make it possible, what's your theory about why it's actually going to stick?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I see that come up a lot whenever I see, you know, new ag tech startups, uh, some of which have a pretty grandiose vision of of the disruption, but also it comes with it, the assumption of pretty big behavior change on the part of their uh, on the part of their customer that yeah. that seems like a, t- a tough sort of uh line to walk between like you said earlier humans are adaptable but they're not going to adapt for adaptation's sake right they're going to yeah. adapt to to changing conditions and they really have to feel the uh the value of that change
1: yeah 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 and, and again like my experience has been that it's it's very rare that that's just a price question just a hey do you know, I mean, the classic one in California would be 30% of your operating cost is the power that that you pay for to pump water around. So if I can make your water use 20% more efficient, I'm going to save you big bucks on your power bill. Like, I mean, you know, at, at one level that's so obvious and you, it's just like why don't people do that? Um, but the reality is, you know, that that person who looks after that operation probably has one irrigator who manages three different properties for them and they trust that person. And, you know, they kind of know, like if if the irrigator rang them up and said, hey, look, I was just out in in this field here and I reckon those trees look a bit too dry. Uh, I'm gonna turn the pump on now and I'm gonna run it, you know, till tomorrow morning. Based on that level of trust, like that grower is just gonna say, yeah, great. And if they drive past and they hear the pump running, it's like, okay, yeah, well, you know, I know that person, I trust them, that's happening for a reason. It's it's so completely different with technology. Technology, you know, your irrigation system can send you a text message and say, blah, 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 I'm going to turn the pump off now, we don't need to pump anymore. And it's 110 and the middle of the day and you're like, uh, you know, why, why do I believe a computer, right? So there's just all this right all these other factors and the the reality is that that $10,000 that they might save in that year is probably nothing compared to the amount of money that a 2% or 1% or 3% yield improvement or yield loss would be so it's like the it's the psychology of an unrealized loss yeah. made against the you know actuality of you know a modest saving in power bill
0: Yep. You know, if I'm, if I'm a farmer and I'm, I have purchased a technology that, you know, is, is, has some big promises. No one's going to bail me out if I'm wrong. You know, that ag tech company Never. is not going to pay, pay my, my loan off or, you know, cover my bills. If, if, if it's wrong, they feel like they're, you know, the farmer feels like they're the only ones with skin in the game. So how can ag tech companies do a better job of building trust to try to, you know, to work for, together for the benefit of both parties? yeah
1: I, I think you that's exactly it. Like I th- we would encourage uh, companies to really understand that it's a relationship that you're building. So you know to go back to that example, right, which is replacing or augmenting or dealing with the you know scarce availability of someone who might otherwise be your irrigator, probably don't jump straight to the hey, I'm going to automate your entire irrigation system. As the first value proposition, yeah. you know you, you might launch the product and and say, "Hey, we're just going to run alongside your existing irrigating practices, and at the end of a week, we're going to come back to you and say, we saw this week that there was an opportunity for you to put down, you know, this fewer acre inches of water, and and sort of." In the same way that you do in any human relationship, earn the trust of the person that you want to trust you, and then once you have earned their trust, you've earned the uh, opportunity to introduce a newer value proposition to them and one that they now can see doesn't involve a compromise that they're not prepared to make.
0: Whoa. I hope you all caught that last point, especially you aspiring entrepreneurs out there about earning trust. That's the bonus content I wanted to make sure all of you got access to, both on the water side and the innovation front. Thanks so much again to Matthew Pryor for bringing his wisdom and experiences to the show. Let me know what you think of having an occasional bonus episode like this. Not real long, but would you rather I just left it in the episode to begin with, and which would have made it probably over an hour long? Would you rather just not have them at all and want me to edit it down to one narrative? Either way, I, I'm open to your feedback, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you on on Twitter, email, or, or many of you like to reach out on LinkedIn, direct message, which is great as well. We'll be back on Wednesday, just a couple days away, with a regular episode. Thanks so much for listening.